When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Thank you, audience. Uh, and thank you, everyone out there who's watching the live stream, and welcome to the Paul Hamlin Hall here in the Royal Opera House at Covent Garden. Um, I'm so proud and happy to introduce you to the Verdi versus Wagner, uh, the 200th birthday debate uh, here. It's a, an event I've been looking forward to for a long time, and it's uh, just part of the Deloitte Ignite uh, Verdi Wagner 200th birthday festival. Uh, we have two august and eminent advocates for this debate, uh, each passionate about their chosen composer and determined to persuade you that theirs is the greater genius. First, we have Norman Lebrecht. He is one of Britain's leading cultural commentators and critics, a novelist, author of 12 books on music, um, and he will be advocating tonight the cause of Giuseppe Verdi or Joe Green, as we know in English. Um, you will know Joe Green, of course. Um, he's the man who wrote this. of course, Va Pensiero, better known as the chorus of the Hebrew slaves from Nabucco by Verdi. And in the Wagner corner, we have Philip Henscher, a novelist, critic, journalist who writes for The Spectator and The Mail on Sunday. Uh, you may think you don't know much Wagner, but you'll sure as heck fire know this.
there was, of course, the Valkyrenreit, the Ride of the Valkyries from Act Three of, of uh, well, you could either call it the first or the second of the Ring Cycle, depending on how pernickety you are about the order in which uh, Wagner preferred them to be described. Um, thousands of people are watching us here through the magic of live streaming uh, uh, all around the world. Now, as with all Intelligence Squared debates, we took a straw poller. We asked people on the way in whether they were more disposed towards Wagner uh, or towards Verdi. And uh, they will have the chance to vote all over again once they have heard the advocates for the respective composers and the debates and the arguments that they've put forward. To illustrate their points and help persuade you out there and you in the hall in particular as you're the voters, um, naturally we need to hear some of the music and wouldn't it be great if we could hear it live. So please welcome the South Bank Sinfonia and their conductor Philip Wynne Griffiths. Paul Wynne Griffiths, I beg your pardon. <laughs> Too many Philips. And um, this group of young professionals have a long-standing relationship with the Royal Opera House, and we are very, very grateful they've given up a Sunday evening to be with us tonight. But, of course, we need more than uh, orchestral colours to get a sense uh, of the true power of these operatic beer moths. We need to hear the sung words. So it's a huge pleasure to welcome soprano Dushitsa Bielic, who is a Yetta Parker young artist um, here at the Royal Opera House, and one of this country's finest international singers, the great bass, Sir John Tomlinson. <laughs> so before we start, gentlemen, I just wanted to ask each one of you um, if you could say in a few words which was perhaps what we might call your epiphanic moment, the moment uh, um, at which this particular composer struck most deeply into your soul. I'll ask you first, Norman, about Verdi. Difficult to pinpoint one moment, but I think I'm about 11 years old and I've just started at grammar school and the music teacher, also the choir master, demonstrates how Vapensiero, which you've just heard, which is the defining anthem of Italy, fits perfectly to the original Hebrew words of the psalm. And I was gobsmacked that Verdi, from a peasant background, speaking nothing but Italian and possibly a little church Latin, had intuited the original Hebrew of the Bible. Do you want to know how it fits? Yes, tell well, Shall I sing it? Sure, go on. Maestro, chord. Can we have a... A-sharp. Can we have an A-sharp? No. No. Vapensiero in Hebrew, right? Al narot pavel sham yashavnu sham bachinu vzochreinu etziyovon Al narot pavel sham yashavnu Very good. I, I can now say I've sung at the Royal Opera House. You can! <laughs> <laughs> So, so, Philip, what, what, when, when did Wagner first, first touch you? Well, um, it was on the rates, really, uh, because <laughs> the, Sheffield, uh, the Sheffield City Library, I don't know where they still have, they used to have a wonderful record library, and in it they had um, 
the old ENO recordings under Reginald Goodall of The Ring with uh, Rita Hunter in a vast um, silver great. foil <laughs> frock. And for, for about six months, I would just kind of come home and play a side of the, the Ring and then contemplate it. And then a little bit later, I'm old enough that um, a shameful moment in, in British public life that um, students could claim the dole in um, the summer holidays. And uh, one summer holiday, it's incredible, one summer holiday I spent my dole money on all of Wagner's operas, including um, the great Carlos Kleiber recording of Tristan, which for me is still the, the transcendental thing. But So I, I, it, was, it was a kind of LP experience first, before it was yeah. a theatrical thing. But then Fantastic. it was a theatrical experience too. Well, thank you both very much. I think it's time to move on now. Now, Norman, I'm going to give you enough time, I think, for you to be able to convince us all that Verdi is the greater of the two. And so if you'd like to stand and begin your address. Maybe I'll start from a seated position and work, Absolutely my, work myself your choice. Up. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming. Um, I am operating here against several very considerable disadvantages. First of all, my distinguished opponent, who proposes to play the entire ring for you on the piano until you surrender. <laughs> then my chair, who is, as you know, a card-carrying Wagnerian. But as honest uh, as the day is long. Honest as the day is long, very possibly, but I took a look at his party card, <laughs> and its number is almost as low as Michael Portillo's. <laughs> Um, against these two very considerable disadvantages, I also have your own inner feelings. As you entered these, these premises, this hall, the former Alberto Villar Hall, um, as, you, as you entered, you were asked which you preferred, Verdi or Wagner. And if you were sure that nobody was listening, you said Verdi. But if you wanted to impress your partner, you said Wagner, didn't you? I could see a lady in the fourth row, yes. Um, <laughs> You did, didn't you? Because you thought, that's going to make me look a better person. It's going to make me look more intelligent, more appreciative. I can do the big things, whereas Verdi has been the object of a vicious propaganda campaign and written off as just another Italian tunesmith, an organ grinder to, to, to Wagner's pantheon of sound. So we're operating against that prejudice as well. And indeed, Verdi himself was operating against that prejudice, even though he enjoyed success before Wagner in 1842 with Nabucco. He started earlier. He was the first to get going. Um, from the middle of his life, from the 1860s, we'll come to that in a, in, in a little while, he was forever being berated by his own Italians for not being more like Wagner. Wagner was the monkey on his back. So in a sense, some of the argument that I have to present tonight is the argument that Verdi himself was presenting against the Wagnerian tendency, against the Wagnerian superiority. So uh, these, these are quite considerable uh, opponents, ladies and gentlemen. I don't underestimate them. And, and uh, you know, if I will be happy to get away with a two-to-one majority tonight. <laughs> I think we need to define terms. What do we need, mean by Verdi versus Wagner? You can't actually say one's music is better than the other because they are so different in any way. You can't compare music at this level. You are, what are you comparing? You're comparing apples and peaches, aren't you? Um, uh, I mean, if one was going to be a little unkind to Wagner, you'd say it was Granny Smith's against some luscious Italian fruit. But no, <laughs> we, we won't be let's not be unkind to Wagner. It's not that kind of event. We'll be very polite to him studiously polite. Um, what are the terms, then, by which we can judge 
these two great summiteers of their art, because there is no greater figure in Italian opera than Giuseppe Verdi, and no greater figure in German opera than, than Richard Wagner. And what I would propose, I hope my uh, distinguished opponent will agree, is that we look at two criteria. One is how each of them changed the course of music, certainly of their own art form, and the other is how each of them changed the world. Let me perhaps begin with a little bit of biography, just to get us up and running. I don't, I don't suspect that you've all, you've all swallowed Grove before you came in. Both are born in 1813, Wagner in May, um, Verdi in October. Verdi, Wagner is a city boy, he's born in Leipzig. Verdi is born in a village, a, a practically scrubland, a really nondescript place called Le Roncole. And uh, he is born into a family that, as they say, has seen better times. And there's probably nothing worse than to be born into a family that feels itself on the slide. They once owned a lot of property, they now own very little. And they are practically living a peasant existence, dependent to, to, to some degree on charity for their survival. This is not a good uh, environment in which to grow up. But fortunately, it catches the eye of a man called Antonio Barezzi, in the nearby town of Bosetto, and he, Barezzi, sees his talent and supports the boy and puts him through school and then puts him through conservatory. And then Verdi goes and marries Barezzi's daughter, Margarita, and uh, is looking forward to live happily ever after and to settle down and write operas. And he starts doing that without any impact at all. He's 26 practically a grandfather in Italian terms, before his first opera gets staged. Every major Italian composer has had an opera on stage at around 20 or 21. Verdi waits until 26 before he gets there, and it is, of course, a flop. So um, he decides to take the family to Milan, because that's clearly where opera is going to be, where, where his fortune is going to be made or broken. And three fateful things happen. First of all, his little boy, 17 months old, dies of a childhood illness. Uh, they come to Milan, and his daughter falls sick, and his wife pawns her few jewels to try and keep the family together. The daughter dies. Finally, the worst blow of all, his wife dies. He is in his late 20s now, and he's totally bereft, and he has two choices. He can go back to the village, or he can write Nabucco. Well, we know what he did. He wrote Nabucco. And the effect in 1842 of Nabucco is enormous. It, it resonates still to this day. Because with Nabucco, with Vapensiero, he defines the Italian aspiration of nationhood, but not in a nationalist sense. The key thing to remember about Verdi is he is never a narrow nationalist. And the proof of it is the story that he takes for Nabucco, which is the story of the Hebrew slaves in Babylon. They've been expelled from their land. They are scorned. They are, in Handel's term, despised and rejected. And they are, they are the downtrodden equally of Europe. Uh, they are constantly railed against in, in, in church pulpits. The Jews are, are, the Jews are our misfortune. Verdi is the first European composer to make an opera of the fate of the Jews and to use that as a paradigm for the fate of all oppressed people in Europe and in the world. And this is what takes off in 1842. 
only Handel, in the entire history of music, only Handel has presented Jews as heroes on the stage, and that is in oratorio. On the last occasion, it was Judas Maccabeus. It's exactly 100 years before that Handel wrote Judas Maccabeus. 100 years until Verdi comes along and says, the Jew is the oppressed in us all. What is he doing here in Valpensiero? What is he saying to us? He's saying, Italy and Italians have the right to self-determination. They have a right to stand up tall among the nations. They have a right to be like the English, to be like the French. The Germans didn't yet exist. Uh, to be free people in their own land, but not in any narrow sense. They need to respect other cultures. They need to recognize that the Hebrews, who are so scorned, also have a similar right, and that if Italy is ever to be a state which will earn world respect, it will be a state of tolerance. It will be a state of multiculturalism. Ladies and gentlemen, how modern, how 21st century is that? I might add, how stark is that in contrast to Richard Wagner, who at the time that Verdi is presenting Nabucco, is starting to write his notorious tract on Jewishness in music, in which he proposes that minorities, and Jews in particular, are excluded from European culture, the first known case of cultural ethnic cleansing. Why Verdi? That's one very good reason. We look on at the developing, the unfolding career of this astonishing musician. 1842, we said Nabucco. After that, it's one or two operas every year. There are 40 altogether. Nobody remembers them all, except possibly the late Edward Downs. John Tom, you remember him. Um, the late Edward Downs, who tried valiantly to perform all 40 in this place. Let me give you some highlights. 1842, Nabucco. 1847, an absolute annos mirabilis. Macbeth, which Verdi considered his greatest to date. Masnadieri and in November, Jerusalem, three major operas in a year. And then we come to March 1951. And over the next three years, Rigoletto, Trovatore, Traviata. Unbelievable. The summits of Italian opera. Some of the most performed operas of this day. Stephen, you were saying, which is the most current? Well, Traviata was performed 553 times uh, since uh, 2008-9 season. Right. Up to this date. And, and uh, Trovatore and Rigoletto are pretty, they're up there too they're pretty the close. Yeah. They're pretty close. Writing in the 1850s, he is still speaking to the Vox Populi of the 2010s. Impossible, impossible to imagine the effect that these operas had on their audiences. Um, in one of the lesser known operas, there is a scene where the hero jumps off a balcony. And people in the audience got so excited by this that two of them jumped off the balcony into the orchestra. Fortunately, no, no musicians were harmed in the making of this production, we're told. You can't be too sure about the reporting from Italy. Um, he was the most extraordinary perfectionist. For Macbeth, there were a hundred rehearsals, unheard of in 1847. There were three months of piano repetitions before he was satisfied that the sleepwalking scene was right. 
There were 150 sing-throughs of the soprano-baritone duet. Brought the house down, of course. He was the ultimate professional. He was the complete non-compromising musician who knew the value of everything that he was doing, who felt every time, almost every time he has a premiere, and you look in his letters, he writes afterwards, un gran fiasco. Failed again. <laughs> I'm going to have to go back to the village. No, I'll go back to the desk tomorrow morning and write another one. Every time he thought he was a complete failure, and every time that he did think he was a complete fa failure, his operas were being taken up in London, in Paris, and across Europe. In fact, he was very fond of London, much preferred it to Paris. But let's leave, don't, don't let that influence your votes. Please <laughs> delete that, my lord, from the record. <laughs> let me give you a little demonstration. If you want to tune up underneath, that's all right, because you'll be playing in a second. Um, let me give you a little demonstration of just how far he advanced the arts. And what I'm going to give you, what the Britain Symphonia, Southbank Symphonia is going to be giving you, is uh, under Paul Wynne Griffiths. Um, is the overture, the overture to Il Forza del Estino, which is finally presented after several revisions in 1862. So it's middle period Verdi. And he gives us an eight-minute overture of a kind that would have been inconceivable before this time. You could not imagine his predecessors in Italian opera, Rossini, Bellini, Donizetti, writing something like this. What they were giving you in their overtures were little snippets of, of, of the arias to come. They were giving you a precy of the delights that you can expect. Verdi is doing a bit of that, but he's doing much more. He's writing atmosphere. He's writing character. He is a novelist. And he's also writing music that anticipates the art of film score writing. Maestro.
Thank you very much. All right. Thank you very much. The South Bank Sinfonia, ladies and gentlemen. And their conductor, Paul Wynne Griffiths. <laughs> Thank you very much. And for those of you, uh, the, those of you who are thinking, now, why do I know that tune? It's Jean de Florette you might have been thinking of, or if you're a lower order of being, the Stella Artois advert. <laughs> <laughs> on with you, on you go. Norman. I could almost rest my case. I mean, he's, writing, <laughs> you know, he's writing for the future. Without Verdi, there's no Hollywood. Where would John Williams be? And remember also, Verdi is writing these eight-minute overtures for Italians with the attention span of a butterfly. You know, Italians know what they like, and if they don't get it, they walk. They're not Germans. You know, Germans are quite happily prepared to sit for an hour waiting for a verb. <laughs> yeah, have you ever heard an Angela Merkel speech? So Wagner had time on his hands, as it were, to get to the point. Verdi didn't. He had to hit them right there, and if he didn't, they walked. So he knew what he was doing, and yet, in, within those circumstances, he's able to create a little masterpiece of an overture, in which is a whole world in itself. It's at this point in his life that the Verdi versus Wagner competition begins. They're in Paris, and uh, Wagner has been living there in exile, and Verdi goes there um, to do um, Vesper, I think it is. And um, let's just give a little comparison of where they are in their lives. Wagner, this... Oops, am I still there? No, I'm not. Um, I've lost sound. Back I'm back. Again. Good, very excellent, very good. Okay. Oh, there's, there's a Wagnerian at work here. <laughs> All right. Wagner at this time has written, has staged Dutchman Tannhäuser Lohengrin, and he's talking up the ring, but nobody's seen anything of it. Verdi, by now, the 1860s, being staged all over Europe. Verdi, in his operas, is always concerned with the individual. He's always taking you to the heart of the matter. You're always feeling for that man, that woman. Wagner is dealing with princes, noblemen, power. Verdi scorns power. When, when he's offered it, when, he, when, when they try to give him titles in Italy, brushes it aside, doesn't like it. Wagner, he resents the monarchy. Wagner wheedles up to the king of Bavaria and finally gets the means to stage Tristan. If Verdi does kings, it's generally to have them killed. <laughs> Wagner idealizes power and identifies with it. So Verdi is in Paris staging Don Carlo. And what do the critics say the next morning? Why can't he be more like Wagner? And he replies, what luck to end up after 35 years hard work as an imitator of Wagner. If the critics had paid attention, they would have seen the same kind of trio as in Ernani, the same sleepwalking scene as in Macbeth. He is himself. Critics, huh? what do they know? He then adds, there's nothing wrong with admiring Wagner. Note. So long as admiration does not degenerate to imitation. Wagner has been done, and there's no point in doing him again. He's not a wild animal, as the purists claim, nor prophet, as his apostles maintain. He's a man of great gifts, who likes the roughest roads, because he does not know how to find the easy, straight ones. Verdi sees himself as continuing and developing that long path of tradition. And he cries out. He cries out, Vi pare che sotto questa sole e questo cielo io avrei potuto scrivere in Tristano 
o la tetrologia. Siamo italiano per Dio, in tutto, anche nella musica. Do you think that under this sun and this sky I could write Tristan or the tetralogy? We're Italian for God's sake, in everything, even, especially, in music. Wagner hardly makes reference to, Va to, to Verdi at all. You pick up one or two tiny little things in the conversations, and they're dismissive and often rude. He's, he, on one occasion, he orders uh, Hans Richter, stop talking about Verdi, uh, trying, uh, saying, well, he's no worse than Donizetti. And he hears, in 1882, shortly before his death, uh, Ver uh, Wagner hears a Verdi theme sung on the Grand Canal in Venice, and he says, huh, they call that a natural line. There's nothing like that in Rossini. So he's completely dismissive of uh, Verdi, whereas Verdi is always respectful of Wagner. He attends the Italian premiere of the first Wagner work to be staged there, which was Lohengrin, Bologna, 1871, and he applauds. And in February 1883... Just, just that bell to remind you, you've got two minutes mm -hmm. left, including your, yep, your yep, closing yep, music. Yep, yep, okay. February 1883, reading of Wagner's death in the newspaper. He writes to his publisher, Ricordi, Triste, 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 Wagner e morte. When I read the news, says Verdi, I was totally crushed. A great personality has gone a name which will leave a huge imprint on the art. That's Verdi. That's the grandeur of Verdi. With Wagner gone in 1883, he can be himself. What follows is extraordinary. February 1887, Otello. February 1893, at the age of 80, Falstaff. We're going to hear another piece of music. We're going to hear the Willow Song. And it's going to show Verdi's very different approach to an immolation scene. Desdemona, a beauty, but a bit brainless, all bling and handbags. She knows she's going to die, but she can't figure out why. The man she loves, the great general, has changed. He's gone off her, maybe found someone else, maybe got too close in a manly way to that oleaginous Iago. She's desperate, alone, helpless, and still in love. She's the abandoned love in each and every one of us. And Verdi writes her an aria that rejects every stage convention. She does not sing a glorious melody or one of those glass-shattering riffs from Donizetti. She sings music that at times makes our skin crawl. We feel for her, and at the same time, we want to put a great distance between ourselves and her terrible situation. And when she's through with the meditation, Desdemona turns in a most unverdian way to God. Verdi is, of course, anti-clerical. But he gives her the Ave Maria. He allows her that consolation before the consummation of murder. The two arias together is 15 minutes of pure intuition unmatched in the whole of opera.
Dushitsa Bielic, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you for wonderful. Thank you, thank you, Greg. A one-minute summary. Giuseppe Verdi dies in the Grand Hotel of Milan on January the 27th, 1891. Fourteen months later, in the room below, a brash young tenor walks across from La Scala and records the first best-selling record ever. His name is Enrico Caruso, and the arias that he sang were Celeste Aida and Quello Questa from Rigoletto. That is Verdi, the beginning of popular music. So here's the case of Verdi. He writes about you and me. His ca characters adapt readily to our times. He pushes Italian opera to its limits and yet makes it accessible to future media, on record, on film, online, on Intelligence Squared. He is a populist. Wagner is an elitist. He is an inclusivist. Wagner is an exclusivist. Verdi leads to mass culture. Wagner leads to cults. Evviva Verdi. <laughs> Congratulations. Norman. <laughs> Congratulations, Norman the Brecht, for putting a very good case for Giuseppe Verdi. Uh, and I have just a few seconds to give in some tweets that have been coming in. Uh, we have one from Kate uh, Dunham. They're, they're all uh, coming in through the hashtag uh, Deloitte Ignite. Personal opinion, Verdi speaks to my heart, but Wagner speaks to my head. To Todd Templeton, what need for a debate? Enjoy mm. both and rejoice in the differences. Uh, Silva de Rocha, they make me feel completely different things. It depends what my heart yearns for at the moment. Uh, I get from Viv Groskop, Norman Lebrecht is adorable. Gutsy to sing Verdi in front of professional opera singers. Uh, Andre Dupre, there is nothing better than Verdi's Rigoletto. Uh, David Oliver Doswell uh, would have us think of wine. Wagner is expansive, round and deep like a Bordeaux. Verdi is supple, less tannic and gorgeous like a Burgundy. Well, if you can decide for yourselves on that, but now we need to hear the case, of course, for Richard Wagner and to bring that Thank you, Philip Henshaw. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to take a slightly different uh, approach to, uh, to Norman in talking about uh, what Wagner has to recommend himself to, to us. Because after all, um, the 19th century was absolutely full of German nationalists, some of whom were undoubtedly extremely nasty. Um, it was also full of Italian nationalists, some of whom were undoubtedly extremely nice, but um, we're not really going to meet either of them. So I don't really see that that should be at the forefront of our concern. Some of the worst operas in the world were written by extremely nice people. Um, <laughs> I think... Uh, <laughs> um, this is, we, I will come round to, uh, to Wagner's character and what he actually did in time, but for the most, for the, I'm going to start with what I think ought to be at the front of our concern when we talk about these people, which is what's actually in their work and the quality of their work. I'm going to talk first about Wagner as what I think he's simply supreme at, as a psychologist working 
in opera. And then secondly, I'm going to talk about what uh, Norman didn't really have time to get round to, uh, which is uh, his music. Um, <laughs> I think what's... <laughs> I think, what's, uh, uh, I think the, there's striking moments of Wagner's um, um, psychological penetration everywhere. Now, uh, Norman said that Verdi was a novelist talking about um, uh, the Forza del Destino overture. Of course, he was talking metaphorically. If you try and imagine the plot of a Verdi opera told from the point of view of one of his minor characters, or even one of the major characters, it falls apart instantly. If you think, try and think of what Rigoletto looks like from the point of view of the Duke, it makes no sense at all. He hasn't really thought it through in the way that a novelist would. He's not that sort of artist. Wagner really is that sort of artist. If you think of the end of Goethe Demerol, there's a tiny scene with Gutruna waiting for Siegfried, who's actually been killed, to come back from the hunt. She's on her own. She knows that she's been, uh, she's been betrothed to Siegfried. She's not worthy of him. She knows that he really belongs to Brunhilde, and she's afraid in the night. She can hear the noise of uh, Siegfried's horse neighing in the stables. She's very frightened. She can hear a noise of laughter somewhere. Is it Brunhilde? It's terrifying to her. And suddenly, we see the whole action of Goethe Demerung through the eyes of this minor character. Wagner threw himself into her mind in exactly the way that a great 19th century novelist would. It's a great novelistic moment. It's also a novel moment of dense humanity. These sort of insights into psychology, they're everywhere in Wagner, and despite the fact that they're about gods and heroes and myths, they're very, they're very truthful to human experience. And there was a very striking moment recently. Um, you remember in Rheingold, the two giants kidnap Freya, and when they bring her back, from her, from, uh, from, from, the, uh, from her brutal experience, it turns out that one of them, Fazold, has actually fallen in love with her. And he thinks, he seems to think, that she might actually be happy with him in rather a pathetic way. He says, but I, I love her. Do I really want all this gold? It's a very strange moment. But recently, in real life, we saw how accurate Wagner was. There was a case of a couple who were kidnapped by Somalian ter terrorists, pirates. Um, they were called Judith and David Tebbett. And David Tebbett was killed immediately by the pirates, and Judith Tebbett had six months of great misery and privation at the hands of these wicked, wicked people. And when she came back, she said that one of them said, said this to her towards the end of her, her um, imprisonment. He said to her, do you think I'm a bad man if I came to London? would you say hello to me? And I thought, that's Fazolt. That is Fazolt deluding himself. But who had noticed that before Wagner? Who thought himself into these situations? Characters in Wagner are faced with decisions to which there's no right or wrong answer. When Valtrauter comes to Brunhilde, she says to her, give the ring back, and then Wotan, Wotan won't come to an end. Valhalla won't be destroyed. And she says, no, but... Is she right to do that? Well, we wonder about that, watching the opera. You know, her decision leads not only to the end of the gods, to the death of everyone, including herself. But what should she have done? We engage with that. We wonder about it from her angle, from the point of view of Valtrauter, from the point of view of Wotan, who's not even in the opera. What should Hans Sachs have done 
in Meisterzing. What should Tristan have done? We wonder about all of these things. And the situations are very often much, much less simple than we think. They have the kind of novelistic range and complexity. It's often forgot, you often forget, if you're just listening to the end of Rheingold with a triumphal progress into Valhalla, that this is taking place with a, with a murdered with a murdered person lying on the stage. We worry about that murdered person. We worry about the violence that lies underneath this, um, this triumph. And Wagner is full of complex moments like that. In most operas, characters are revealed in their true nature. That's the most that happens to them. They're faced with right decisions about right or wrong. They make that decision, and that's the end of it. We feel we know what their true nature is. Wagner's are like the characters in novels. They develop, they change, they make, make choices. They're never definitively revealed, and they're quite different from at the end of the journey from the beginning. If you think of the difference between Brunhilde, when she first appears, this schoolgirl bounding on, um, hoi to hoi, and the disillusioned woman at the end of Goethe Demerol. It's an extraordinary journey. It's like a character in Tolstoy, almost. Now, I think one of the things that you can say about Wagner in, the, in defiance of the uh, nice composer theory of who ought to be allowed to write operas is that one of the things that he did gain from not being a very nice person was that he understood what lay behind people behaving very badly. It seems to me that Verdi, who was undoubtedly a very decent person, his villains, I think there's a, a kind of blankness. I don't think he understands why a, somebody like the Duke in Rigoletto might behave like that. Now, when we go to Wagner, there's no doubt that he understands very well why an Alberic would behave like that, why a Mima would behave like that. He has a great deal of sympathy and understanding for even the worst of his characters, and they, they remain very, um, very convincing. They become more and more convincing as it goes on. His nature might have been bad for his friends and his family and his patrons, but it's very good for posterity. I think the, um, the single reason why these psychologies are so convincing is that Wagner consistently finds a, um, a means of embodying them through the music. They're not just, it's not just accompanying music. The music enacts these psychologies. And the orchestra is going to play a section at the end of Valkyrie in a moment. But I just want to demonstrate something about how the, um, the music is embodying an important truth about Wotan. Now, the, there's a theme that runs through the, uh, the ring for Wotan's power. And at the end of the Valkyrie, Wotan is exerting his power. He's showing, um, he's showing what his power can do in banishing Brunhilde. And this is the theme. That's the spear. Now, the whole action of the ring turns on the moment when the father's power in the, um, in the form of the spear meets the sword, which is given to the children and subsequently to the grandchildren. It meets twice. The first time, the father's power prevails and the sword is broken. The second time, at the end of Siegfried, 
the, the, the power of the grandchildren prevails and the spear is broken. But the spear, Wotan's power, is broken long before it's broken in real life. It's broken in the music. If we take that, um, that theme and we push it into a major key, it sounds like this. But Wagner, at this point, has broken it in the music. And we get a theme which is about Wotan's love. And his love lies in the, the breaking of his own power. And he goes like this. See how the, the octave transposition breaks the power in half. So I'm just going to ask the orchestra now to play that extract with the great Sir John Tomlinson. Perhaps a, a word of explanation before, this, uh, before we play them and sing the first part of the famous uh, Wotan's Farewell. We are just doing the first part only, the joyous part, the triumphant part. Uh, now, Wotan is saying farewell to his most beloved daughter, Brunhilde. He plunges her into a deep sleep on the mountaintop. He conjures up, using this power that Philip was talking about, fire to surround her, to protect her. And she stays like that for another, ooh, perhaps 18 years, until the young Siegfried comes along, braves the fire, and wakens her up. Siegfried, of course, being the grandson of Wotan on Earth. Now, it's a farewell, but why is the music so joyful, as I said? Why is it so triumphant? It's almost ecstatic, the music you're going to hear. Unlike a Verdi farewell, which probably would be very, very beautiful, addio, uh, exquisitely sung for in a very simple, in the best use of that word, and pure form. This, as Philip also said, is more com complicated. Complexity is important with Wagner. So it is ecstatic because Wotan has been working out plans for years to correct what the damage that he has done to the world. He has made mistakes. The world is in need of rescue because the ring is out there, the notorious ring, and it needs dealing with, and Wotan himself cannot deal with it for all sorts of reasons. In this moment, after hours of desperation and crisis in the ring, in this moment, there's an explosion of optimism and joy because Wotan sees the plans working. Siegfried true, natural, liberated human being will waken Brunhilde. Together they will take the ring. It will end up at the bottom of the Rhine, the river Rhine where it belongs. The world will be once more at peace and the gods will be finished and will die. Uh, perhaps just one word of the very last phrase where a little bit of nostalgia creeps in. Der eine nur freier die Braut, der freier als ich der Gott. Siegfried, as I said, the 
liberated human being will you will be in his arms as opposed to this old god entrammeled with laws and rules and virtues and morals and all the structures that are a need that are needed for a, a civilized world on the contrary you'll be with a natural free hero
And Paul Red Griffith and the Southbank Symphonia. So, uh, back to you, Philip. The key to, key to Wagner, the centre of Wagner, why we're interested in Wagner is the music. And no one has ever denied, I think, the power of Wagner's music. And I think both proponents and opponents raise it as the cause of their feelings. Um, Debussy said uh, in his uh, music critic days, it is hard to imagine the state to which the strongest brain is reduced by listening to four nights to the ring. It's worse than obsession, it is possession. You no longer belong to yourself. Wagner foresaw that. When he was writing Tristan, he wrote to Matilda Wesendong and said that uh, he hoped that only bad performances of Tristan would take place because a good performance would drive people mad. And they have. People have been killed by Tristan, including the first Tristan. Um, uh, the Belgian composer Guillaume Lecoeur burst into tears the first time he heard the Tristan prelude. Um, no, he fainted. It was Chabrier who burst into tears. I'm so sorry. A character in Buddenbrooks, Thomas Mann's Buddenbrooks, said years later when some, another character asks him to play the Tristan Prelude, he says, that is not music, that is chaos. It is a perfumed fog shot through with lightning. Now, what uh, underlies all of this is a is a comparison between Wagner and another group of composers. It might be Bizet, it might be Verdi, and the idea is that um, those other composers are healthy. Wagner is unhealthy. It's as old as Nietzsche, who turned away from Wagner and said uh, he, had, he, went to, to, uh, he wanted to go to Bizet. Bizet. Um, Wagner, I think, just, we feel that he just exerts too much control over us. And this um, argument is still going on. Last year, Peter Conrad published a book about Verdi versus Wagner, in which he said, I have a feeling that Verdi's music is good for us. An extraordinary thing to say about a composer. I think one of the issues is that we don't observe this, uh, the evil that takes place in Wagner's operas. We don't observe the transformations that are ceaselessly taking place in the characters. We take part in it. And that's because the art of transformation, the art of change, the art of corruption is at the heart of Wagner's um, musical endeavor. He said that the art of transformation was his deepest art. The drama happens in the music. It happens largely in the orchestra. It enables um, this music to take place on an unprecedented scale. Wagner's acts, uh, Wagner's acts are not just music that happened to go on for an hour and a half, two hours, two and a quarter hours. They're whole musical structures that are put together um, on, in an unprecedentedly skillful way through transformation. The music often acts, the orchestral music often acts as a sort of um, stream of consciousness. It renders the character's thoughts, even when it doesn't correspond to anything that's happening on stage. The first time Wotan thinks of a way forward at the end of Rheingold, which is to place the, the sword in the tree, the orchestra plays what will become the sword motif. Nobody on stage is talking about the sword. It is just going through Wotan's mind. At the end of Valkyrie, 
he thinks of who the hero is going to be that's going to carry out all these, um, all these deeds. And what we hear in the orchestra is Siegfried's, um, is Siegfried's motif. Siegfried is just a fetus in the, uh, in the belly of Sieglinde at this point. We don't know his name, we don't know anything about him, but the orchestra knows all about him. I want to um, explain with a single example, which the orchestra is going to um, uh, perform in, in a moment, how this thematic idea of the opera... You've got, um, just to say you've got two minutes before okay. you introduce that prelude. Okay. It, um, the, the thematic idea um, descends um, deep into the music, and it's the Tristan prelude. And the great invention of the Tristan prelude is the way it deals with discord. Now, in music, a discord classically resolves. Not in the Tristan prelude. It goes on from one discord to another. It starts with this discord, and it moves to this discord. It moves to this discord. It moves to this discord, and so on. And so on. What's, uh, what it's doing is depicting the ongoing, unfulfilled desire. It's never going to be fulfilled. That thing is deep in the music, and it's constantly being transformed. At the end of the, towards the end of the opera, at the beginning of the third act, it begins like this. Apparently a completely different, much more painful sort of music. You'd have to look at it very hard to see that that is the same chord. The transformation of music and the action of the opera are the same thing. And that is why that we have to talk about Wagner's music before we have to talk about anything else. The Tristan Prelude is at the pinnacle of not only what he achieved, but of what 19th century music achieved.
Paul Wynne Griffiths and the South Bank Symphonia. Thank you so very Thank much you. indeed. Thank you. Well, we have, we have a few more tweets to, 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 to read out, if you'd like to hear them. Uh, but first of all, we have a minute for Philip to round up, of course. I'd just like to finish with a few thoughts about... Um, about Wagner's uh, political, public life. Now, a lot, in recent decades, a lot of attention has been paid to his undoubted anti-Semitism. Um, I think that the one thing that is, is too, it's too big a subject to, um, to discuss in the remaining minute, the one thing that I would say is that it's very doubtful, it's greatly discussed, it's not clear at all whether the anti-Semitism goes beyond the pamphlet and into the music. There is anti-Semitic 19th century music, it's not on the whole clearly by Wagner. But there are other aspects of uh, Wagner's political thought that do get into the music. When he was planning The Ring in 1850, he said, after the third performance, the theatre, which he was planning, he's already thinking of Bayreuth, the theatre will be demolished and my score burned. To the people who enjoyed it, I shall then say, now go away and do it yourself. The Ring Norman said that it's all about kings and power. I, I, it made me wonder whether he's actually seen an opera by Wagner. The Ring is all about the demolition of power, the destruction of the Ring, which is arbitrary power, the handing over after the heroes and the gods and the kings have gone to the crowd. We look at the crowd standing bewildered at the end of Gotterdammerung, and we try and find our own faces in that crowd. Wagner was an immense person. He was devoted to the ideas of the, the people, of the nation-state, of the individuals within that nation-state having their say. He made dramas out of that movement. Because of his, his immensity, I think there are aspects of him that we can confidently revile after 200 years. But I think before we let that block out Wagner, we should think of the third act of Parsifal, we should think of the quintet in Mastersingers, we should think of the prelude to Tristan. Wagner's not less human than anyone else. His huge range, his huge capacity, makes him, I think, more human than anyone else who ever lived. Thank you. Well, you've had some supporting tweets in, it has to be said, Verdi, but uh, it's hard to see how much Verdi, how Verdi could win in a debate such as this. There's just so much more with Wagner, more everything. That's from Imani Mosley. Wagner, the original bad boy rock star, arguably. <laughs> Nicholas Bryan said that. Wagner, by far the greater genius, amazing orchestration and melodies, James Stewart III. Both composers are outstanding, but I've never known sheer power like the operas of Wagner. Um, now, I have the honour to be able to tell you the result of the straw poll as you entered. Uh, how did it go? Are most of you Wagnerians, most of you Verdi, most of you sitting on the fence? It is unbelievably close. This debate is going to be swinging on the smallest of margins. Uh, so, before anybody spoke, 32% favoured Verdi, 37% <laughs> fancied Wagner, and 
were undecided. So there's everything to play for, to say the least. Now it's my chance to ask a question or two, possibly. One thing I just wanted to raise is a factual thing, and that's your claiming that Verdi was somehow the master of film music. I think it's almost indisputed that that's Wagner's role. In fact, there's a historic <laughs> line from the second school uh, 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 of Vienna, uh, Schoenberg and Berg and so on, but particularly Max Steiner, who was the genius who, 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 who graduated from the conservatoire there at the age of 15, went to London and then to, War uh, well, to RKO, where he scored King Kong, and then to Warner Brothers, and he brought with him, uh, there was a Vaxman, and there was D Dmitry Tjomkin, and uh, the greatest of them all, the man that uh, Mahler, incidentally, let's not forget that Mahler said, there are only two, Ludwig and Richard. <laughs> uh, um, uh, the, the man who, had, as a 10-year-old boy, Mahler had said, this is the greatest genius since Mozart, Erich Wolfgang Korngold, who went over. Uh, they were all in a direct line of Wagnerian leitmotif uh, composers who used the leitmotif, the, the device, the figure, such as Philip was showing. So I wonder how you could argue that Verdi, in a sense, ha had, had that role that has almost... It's almost a truism to say that Wagner is the father of film music. No, it's a truism to say Mahler is the father of film music <laughs> through, uh, through Erich Wolfgang Kongel. But um, no, let, me, let, me, let me underline the case then. Um, Verdi, in what he's doing in his overtures, and the way that he's extending his overtures, he's offering the possibilities, offering the template for the future film score. Of course, at the time that he's writing them, there is no film. No, in both cases. The, the, yes. In both cases. In yeah. Wagner also, there's nothing to be imagined there. It's only what they make of them. When Hollywood starts writing proper film scores, which is, of course, with Korngold, who has been uh, identified by Mahler and then by Zemlinsky as the, the future king of opera and then departs in 1935 for Hollywood, um, Korngold is using a range of influences. He's been raised in the opera house, and in that opera house, Vienna, Verdi was performed much more than Wagner, much more regularly. Mahler was a huge respecter of Verdi. He conducted the Austrian premiere of Falstaff, not just once. He conducted every performance of that series. So Mahler had huge respect for Verdi, as he did for Wagner. I will readily acknowledge Mahler's influence on the film score, and indeed, Wagner's indispensable influence on Wagner. But I make the case for Verdi because it hasn't been made before. That's we do right. have to acknowledge those origins. No, that's a fascinating answer. Uh, one thing I want to say, I know it's, uh, it's popularity is, is in a sense meaningless. It's, it's, it's how you feel and how one responds, but it is indisputably true that Verdi is mm. the most popular mm. uh, opera con composer in the world. Every year there are more Verdi uh, performances around the world than there are uh, of the second place, who is Puccini, mm. uh, and the third place, who is Mozart, and the fourth place, who is Wagner. Mm. And uh, does that sort of make a difference? Does that mean that his closing remark, Norman's closing remark about it being somehow exclusive and, uh, 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 you know, just for uh, a sort of uh, little conclave of intellectuals, that Wagner is, is actually not really for the mm. people? Elitist is the word. Elitist is the word well, I was looking for. You know, in the, in the culture we live in, there's, um, if you ask the, the man on the street to gauge the difference in, um, in exclusivity and elitism between Don Carlos and Goethe Demerol, they wouldn't really, I don't think they would really be able to say, well, that's, you know, that's down with the kids and that's for rich people. Also, I don't think that... Um, Popularity is necessarily much of a guide to 
to anything much. I mean, you know, five million people will every afternoon eat in McDonald's, but the food is still <laughs> better at the Maison Saison. No, I mean, I'm not going to sneer at Verdi. Verdi's yeah. a great composer. He's a supreme composer in many ways. Um, but there is certainly a, a sense in which Wagner's project has failed in that he dreamt of a world where everybody would see the ring and everybody would go away and think about their lives afterwards. But, you know, who could start from the position, I only want to write an opera for um, a few very rich and learned people? Certainly not Wagner. Wagner was very interested in the whole human race, I think. Yes. I ought to correct the calendar as well that he did not go snivelling up to Ludwig II. It was Ludwig II who went snivelling up to him. Uh, it was the boot was on the other foot. Now, while I ask the next question, perhaps you could do me the favour of uh, casting your vote. Now, you have here each, I hope, a card. Um, uh, you can tear it in half, but don't tear it in half if you still haven't made your mind up. If you've made your mind up, Tear it in half and put the composer you most value uh, in the bag or box or in the collection that will be coming round. Um, so you'll, you'll, you'll put Wagner uh, in, in the collection if he's the one you want to win, Verdi if he's the one you want to win. You'll keep the whole card in one position if you wish to abstain and keep them both on an equal plane. So, um, while you're doing that, I, I just... I can, I, can I just come yes, back just to, to, come to back, fill yeah. up on that, on, on that point? When you say Wagner is there for all people, Wagner in his writings has excluded certain people. He's writing for the German masses. He's, he's writing for a Volksgemeinschaft. And uh, that, is, that, that is a very exclusive thing to do. But that's also but, but true of the nationalist me, composers like um, Smetner and all the others. There's a whole They're range. not just writing for Czechs. Well, they kind they're, of are. There is a nationalist movement where they, they're precisely trying to define a music that is of their they're, country. They're trying to define they Czechness. Yes. They're trying and, to define Wagner was determined no. to try and define Germanness. There is a, there, what Wagner wanted to do, I regard this as just as sinister as what you're saying. He wanted people to become German. He didn't want people, he didn't want people to be excluded from the Germans. He really wanted to say, why can't more people be German? These people aren't German enough. We want them to be more German. He, he, it was, it's an idealistic and absurd position, and I think it had, you know, contemptible results. Well, except, be, except for those who could never qualify to be German, which he, which he made a list of. Yeah, well, uh, including that's, people like you but, and me who are Jewish. Yeah, but, exactly. but there again, but, but, but let, 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 me, let me just say, the argument that we're having is not a new mm. one. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it goes back an awfully long way. Franz Werfel, who was a best-selling German novelist, very high-quality novelist, and, and indeed a huge admirer of Verdi, he wrote a novelization of Verdi's life, said, how can you compare the two? Verdi wrote this magnificent body of works, and Wagner created a universe. So well, we're back to yeah. apples and peaches. You're right. But there's one thing we can compare, which is really beyond dispute, and that is the effect they had not only on their art, but on, the, on all art and on the world. Mm. Um, the, the piece we just heard so magnificently played by the South Bank Sanfonia, the Vorspiel, the, 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 the prelude to, to uh, Tristan, is followed by the words, Frisch weht der Wind der Heimat zu, mein irisch Kind vom Weiles du. And some fans of poetry out there may recognize that from the first you might call modernist work of English language poetry from the desolated, fractured world of the wasteland 
Erdentler das Meer is also quoted, as are the Rhine maidens. Um, there are more books written on the, on, the, uh, on the influence of Wagner on Proust than there are books written on Verdi. <laughs> there are more books written on Wagner than there are on Napoleon. Yep. There is, a, I mean, it is, that's, this is not to say yeah. that that should make you vote for, for Wagner, but there is something quite astonishing in the effect he had on so many other poets, writers, artists, mm. and musicians. There's so much to talk about about Wagner, and the fact that we argue about him um, is, is just a sign of his intrinsic vastness. For instance, you know, Wagner wasn't the only, you know, gross anti-Semite in the 19th century. You know, Schumann wrote, wrote appalling things to his wife. She said, um, um, oh, Jews are always like that. Don't pay any attention. Chopin was absolutely beastly about his, um, his Jewish publishers. We don't really care so much neither about them, Neither men, of them said that Jews should be excluded from the arts. If I wrote well, an essay, this is the point I made. If I wrote an essay to, yeah, today talking about the, the pernicious influence on America, of American culture on the world, of the coca colorization as you will, Starbucks everywhere, that makes everything uniform and homogenous and, 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 and it crushes down individual identities of nations, people would say, oh, he's very anti-American, Stephen, isn't he? Oh, well, well, there you go. That wouldn't mean anything. Hmm. But if... 50 years after I died, literally 50 years after I died, there came a leader of a people who rounded up then 10 years later, all Americans or, uh, that he could, and gassed them, then people would look back on my essay on anti-Americanism and say, that's Stephen mm. Fry. Mm. He was one of those anti-Americans. Mm. It has a very different meaning, anti-Semitism, cultural anti-Semitism yep. yep. uh, of the 19th century. If you mm. look through the black tunnel, of, mm. of the post-Shoah world. A very good question uh, in, from Twitter just now, uh, which is which uh, work would either of you recommend as a first work for someone who has not heard uh, a Verdi or a Wagner piece? So uh, you first, uh, uh, Philip. Uh, Rigoletto. Sorry? Rigoletto. You'd, you'd suggest right. Rigoletto as a first Verdi piece and as a first yes. Wagner piece? Oh, um... <laughs> <laughs> Where to begin? Well, uh, actually, I've, I... Um, I think you start at the deep end. I don't think you, you say, oh, well, you know... Lohengrin, Lohengrin, I took, um, I, I took my, my husband to his first Wagner. I took him to see Parsifal. And I said, as we were going in, you just have to regard this as like watching an immense flower opening. And that seemed to do the trick. I don't know. He liked it. You enjoyed it? Good. Yeah, and what, and what, what would your answer be, Norman? I think for Verdi it would have to be a Traviata. I think one would have to go with the Vox Populi on that. It, it does, yeah. it hits you in so many places. Every time, 26th time you've seen it, you're still there and it's on, you're on the third hanky. It's a wonderful and journey because it starts with such light and froth and champagne yes. and drinking yes. and ends with such absolute... Uh, devastation. Yes, devastation. De devastation. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and such feeling always for the most deprived. Um, Wagner... Really difficult. I mean, one would, one, the tendency would be to go for the simplest, to go for Flying Dutchman. I certainly wouldn't do that. It was my stepmother's favorite opera, and I saw it more often than yeah. I can remember. Um, uh, but I think yeah, it's very, very daring of you, Philip, to, to start with Parsifal and work your way backwards. Mm. I think I would probably go for Lohengrin to somebody who'd never seen Wagner before to just expose them to the grandeur and the scope and see how they take it from there. Well, you'll probably be wanting to know how you all voted. You know how you individually voted, but how did you vote en masse? How, how did it change? Well, it certainly changed in terms of the undecided. 5% only are now undecided. 
5% only put in the one card covering both. 42% prefer Verdi, but 53 Wagner. So I declare mm. Wagner a winner by 11%. <laughs> so I just really want to thank you all for being a marvellous audience. It's been a fantastic debate. And to play us out, I suppose we ought to hear from the winners. Sir John Tomlinson has very kindly agreed to reprise Lieb Vol, Lieb Vol, Lieb Vol, ladies and gentlemen. Farewell, Votan.
Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.